Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings and welcome. Joshua here. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Michelle Borba, the author of the new book, Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine, as well as the book, Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Dr. Borba is an educational psychologist that blends 40 years of teaching and consulting experience with the latest science and someone with lots of wisdom to share on how we can help our kids thrive. In this episode, we discuss how to develop the mind and self-control, how to nurture the heart and cultivate empathy, how to develop resilience and perseverance, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Dr. Michelle Borba. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you. I've been looking forward to it. Great. I'm grateful to connect with you. I have been a fan since your last book, Unselfie, and have really equally enjoyed this new book, Thrivers. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. (laughs) I was hoping we could begin the conversation and go back in time and hear a little bit about your journey that I'm really curious about. I was wondering what initially led you into a career in education? Children. (laughs) It's real (laughs) simple. I was going to be a history major. And I think what happened along the way, I I must have done some practicums or something with kids. I walked into the classroom and went, okay, this is it. They were just way too fun. And another thing that happened that was fascinating is actually my dad. I came home from UC Davis. That's where I went for a couple of years. And I went to Santa Clara University. But I went home and I was an only child and my dad was always really calm. He was older when he married my mom and I didn't know anything about my grandparents. They had passed away way back when. So I didn't know about his childhood, but I walked in and he was holding a magazine and I'll never forget my calm dad pacing. And it was a Newsweek with a cover of babies on it. And it said the first three years make or break a child's life. He said, Michelle, don't buy into it. Because if you bought into this, I'd be dead today. I sat there with my mouth open. And that started this whole thing. Because I said, why? What happened? And he began to tell me that his parents had come over from Europe a very you know poor uneducated my grandfather apparently died when my dad was 2 he had to be put in an orphanage my grandmother couldn't support them but he said i was there in that orphanage and if it weren't for my neighbors who helped me rake the lawn and give me a little extra cash, the local priest who gave me a steak every night to go home and help my my mom when I finally was able to get out of the orphanage, a librarian who realized that I loved books and would sneak me some to take home, a teacher who said, Danny, you love to read and write. I'm going to help you learn to write. He said, it was the people in my life who got me through to resilience. Don't buy into any of this thing because any kid can overcome adversity. And that's when I went back, switched my major to uh, developmental psychology and said, this thing about resilience is being undermined. We got to do something about it. That became 
a 40-year journey to write that book, Thrivers. I love that. I'm so glad I asked. I was wondering if you think back to that maybe first year teaching and you could go back to the beginning of that journey and pass on one piece of advice. Anything come to mind? Yep, another kid named Michael. It's always a, it's an amazing child. Now, I taught special education when I first began. My whole beginning phase was in learning disabilities. So the kids I had when I started with were also kids who were facing adversity, just like my dad. But these kids were already in my classroom because they had either severe learning disabilities, emotional disabilities, physical disabilities, and I was trained to be able to help them learn. Well, there was one little guy. Oh, he was so precious. He was six. And no matter what he did, he'd always cover up the fact that he was happy. He never had that ability to to look like he was shining. He was always struggling. And he always would cover up anything that he was good at. So I had not a clue. I knew that this kid had a strong IQ, but I wasn't materializing at all. And one day, it was my one moment, he covered up the fact he forgot to disguise the fact he was artistic. Now, if I'd praised him at that point, this was my aha moment. If I'd praised him, oh, Michael, you're so artistic. I know he would have ripped it up. So I had to be quiet and had to silently build up the confidence that was really, really hidden. And one day, he finally began to realize it was okay to to let his artistic ability, which was true, shine. I asked him quietly if I could put up his art on the bulletin board. There came the moment. Because all these kids would mull around the bulletin board and go, wow, Michael, you're really artistic. And the glow on his face was amazing. What I then was real simple, I nothing glorious, but I found other parents who could come in and do art lessons because I wasn't so good at it. I passed it on to his parents. Let's find a, maybe an art class for Michael. And I let other teachers know he was artistic. And then you lose them. They go on to different classes. But my aha moment came about 20 years later when I got a letter from him. And it said, Dear Mrs. Borba, I want you to know I graduated from high school, which I was shocked. And I made it to college and graduated, which was like, oh, my gosh, Michael. And he said, I'd been meaning to thank you my whole life for putting my picture on the bulletin board because that was the moment that changed my life. I'm now working as an animator in one of the most amazing studios you can imagine, working on Uh, gosh, movies that I can't tell you what they are because I wanted to keep him confidential. But it was the first moment that I realized the foundation to thriving is identify the kid's strengths. Identify the strengths because resilience helps the kid shine, but it's got to be true and it's got to be who they are, not what we want them to become. That was Michael. A beautiful example and story. Eager to get into this, you provide so many insightful examples throughout. But before we get into some of that content, I was hoping we could spend a bit of time and talk about the introduction. You write, we're raising a generation of of strivers, not thrivers. It really impacted me, this particular introduction. And I would love to spend some time here differentiating Mm -hmm. a striver from a thriver. A thriver to me is a kid who says, I got this. They have an, an, what I now realize is an internal sense of agency or a little bit of control over their life. So they know they can do it and they're not going to be rescued or mom, I don't know what to do or the helicoptered lawnmower kid. That came, by the way, from the University of California when I changed my major. Emmy Warner was the key researcher there who was doing a 40 year study on kids who overcame 
who from strivers to thrivers or survivors to thrivers at that point, because these kids were going into war zones, poverty, sexual abuse. And for some reason, one third of them were bouncing back and being that I got this attitude. So she looked more in depth at it and discovered a, a real commonality was that internal I got this attitude that somehow had been instilled in them. And then they learned, like my dad said, protective factors. So they had people and factors. What I then did once I realized that was that introduction was based on interviewing about 100 kids that were amazing. Counselors gave me access to kids and I spent one-on-one -on -one about an hour each. Most of them were living in pretty darn good zip codes. They were diverse kids, but they were across the country. And the commonality was strikingly concerning that almost every one of them said, despite extremely well-loved children and very high IQs and amazing GPAs, opportunities galore, they all said they were running on empty. They were striving, not thriving. They didn't feel that they were good enough, never felt good enough. And when push came to shove, too often they felt they needed to be rescued. The other thing that was really striking is at the same time I was looking at the CDC and mental health warnings that told us Prior to the pandemic, one in five of American kids were going to suffer from a mental health disorder. So there's the, there's the survivors or the strivers. A striver is a kid who kind of pushes and tries to get there, but never makes the full nine yards. Something comes up along the way, like a little bit of a challenge or an adversity. The thriver finds a way over and around it and through it and keeps on going. Thank you so much for that. You mentioned in the book that you were contacted by some communities that were really struggling, oh. and there was one. Oh. Yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, it tough to tough to hear, but probably worth getting into of of the state of the brutal facts of it. And there was one where I think in a, a couple year span that there was uh, forty suicides yeah. in this kind of not a really large community. It was 40 suicides in two years in a 20-mile radius. Mm. Now, unfortunately, we now know that that's come to be where we just looked at 21 suicides outside of Las Vegas. That was in the pandemic. That rate of the, the 20 miles, 40 kids was actually done prior to the pandemic. And you know, the most amazing thing, Joshua, is I just did when Thrivers was released, Dr. Phil had me come on the show and I did an hour special but they invited parents from that community to come in. And, oh, wow. and the two moms, it was just, uh, I, I still shudder when I think about it. Precious, mm. precious kids. They said they didn't see the signs, but each mom said, if I had to do over again, I would have raised them for resilience. I yeah. didn't, you know, saw that horrible thing. But, you know, the other thing that I discovered is that there were other communities. We're looking at Palo Alto, a very upscale, extremely glorious upper scale kids with high achievement. But there are so many children who had killed themselves by throwing themselves on a train track behind the school that they now have parents in a train watch, watching the train track. So I think the first moment is here. We're suffering, our kids are suffering, and we've got to redefine success as more than a GPA because it's not doing our kids any justice because too many of them are really struggling. Mental health needs are just plummeting. And the CDC now tells us because of this pandemic that we are uh, the next wave of this pandemic is going to be a mental health 
crisis that we've never seen, unprecedented. Our children are really struggling. By the way, this is not just the U.S. Every night I've been, last night I was with the Philippines doing a webinar. Next week it's with Hong Kong. Ireland has just kicked in. It's everywhere is seeing something is going wrong with our children and uh, we've got to do something. The good news is we can, but the first step is realizing that we've got to be more intentional about it. And that is great news, absolutely, that we can do something about it. And you provide a, a wonderful set of, of tools and a framework and it's such a practical book. I love the use of, of the kids' words. I found that to be so powerful. One I have here, we're missing the pieces on how to be people, how to, how to get along, handle mistakes, cope with stress. And you mentioned already kind of this, I recognize this theme of, of kind of feeling empty. What percentage in your interviews, what percentage would you say are kind of kids are reporting those similar types of feelings? There wasn't a kid who didn't. Out of mm. 100 kids, each one of them, by the way, they're more open to be able to telling me because I purposely did it on a phone. So they didn't see my face and I didn't see theirs. They knew that their names were going to be kept anonymously, but I ran out of paper writing down their thoughts. The first takeaway from me is we should be talking to kids more because they have a voice that is incredible. They're honest. They're open. And they have solutions. The solutions were amazing when I'd say, but your school or your parents are teaching you coping skills. And kid after kid would say, yeah, but you don't learn it on a worksheet. Yeah, but you got to practice this stuff. It's not a one-time thing. Yeah, but you got to give us a repertoire of stuff because each one of us is a little different. We do need to cope. And it's quote unquote, we are the most stressed out generation, you know. I went, oh my gosh, so do something for us because we desperately don't want to also disappoint our parents. We really worry about how they're feeling because they put so much into us and they love us so dearly, but we're really struggling. Yeah, definitely. To get into some of the content, I was hoping we could start with, with part two, a, a little out of order here, but yeah. developing mind. And one of the principles there is self-control. Yep. Could you speak to that? What I did, first of all, is discover once I looked at Emmy Werner and once I looked at these kids and then I looked at... There are four other extraordinary pieces of resilience theory that says this can be teachable. It's not one trait. It's not a program. And it's not locked into a window of you only got till age 13. It's not too late for us. So we got hope, Joshua. But here's yeah. what we now know is that I began to look at, okay, so which traits are teachable that impact our kids' resilience as well as mental health as well as peak performance? Because frankly, a parent will go, yeah, but he still needs to be able to get to college. Okay, so is there something? And what I did was pull the seven most highly correlated teachable traits. And one of those is, voila, self-control. Why? Because we do know the first thing is you can't think straight without self-regulating because your arousal control goes out of whack. And what we're realizing is our children's focusing ability. Certainly during a pandemic, when you're stressed, your uh, ability to stay concentrating goes down. So what we do know is that's clearly something that's teachable. Every kid said, would you teach us how to cope? Give us some coping strategies. So that was what self-control is all about. We do know that some of the most amazing schools, because each chapter in Thrivers was I go, I went to visit a place that seemed to be doing this right, that actually studied their kids, was the most amazing preschool I've ever seen in my life. It's called Tools of the Mind. Now, Tools mm -hmm. of the Mind says 
You start with self-control. And if you teach kids self-control, voila, the academics will come. When I went into the classroom, by the way, these were kids that were struggling. Most of these were poverty kids. But the most interesting part of that preschool is I never once saw a behavior problem. I never once heard a teacher say, I'll give you a sticker if you do it right. <laughs> I never heard that's time out. Instead, I saw happy campers because what they were doing is helping the kids learn to manage themselves, giving that agency. Remember that agency piece? They were starting at threes and fours. Tools of the mind is, is unbelievably powerful. So that's the first step is realizing this is doable. And then second of all, I think maybe the first step in self-control is recognizing our stress signs. Real simple. You can't go saying calm down with the kids in an exorcism. And that's what we seem to be doing is the kids is in meltdown mode. And we can do that at age two. You watch a little two-year-old and you can see their little feet go up and down and up and down. And then whoop, there, you know, there they go. They're done. We wait until they're done. And then we tell them to calm down and it's too late. But even at age 15 or 13 or 45, we can still go around and saying, have you noticed that right before you get irritable, you always do this with your hands or you do that rapid breathing or you start to grind your teeth. How cool if maybe this week we could walk around our house and just help each child learn their stress signs in a classroom, help each kid know that that you're starting to seem to get a little out of control. I've seen wonderful things in classrooms now when they have calm down corners. Not because you need time out, but the kid, you know, raises their hand, which means I need some calm. Good. Go over and sit in the calm down corner. There's books. There's music. It's helping the child learn to gain control so that they can still keep self-regulating. And how would you say that connects with self-confidence? Ah, well, how great it is for you don't have to get disciplined all the time. How great of it is for you to be able to say, I got this, as opposed to mom's giving me time out again. How great it is to realize that I can take that deep breath and I can then be able to relax or I can focus more. Or when I have self-control, wow, what's the highest correlation to when we're happier? Okay, University of Chicago. It's when we're in that flow state. When we find something we really enjoy and we stick to it longer, well, that's going to be the greatest self-confidence builder. I got this, mom. I really enjoy it. I can't go for the cake right now because I'm doing this particular piece. That stretches our confidence. It stretches our perseverance. One of the things I discovered, Joshua, is we're going to be talking about all these strengths, but there's also the multiplier effect. And that is, it isn't one strength that gives you the thriver, but if you put self-control with confidence, whoa, it multiplies, it amplifies the two, it makes it even better. Or you put empathy with self-control, wow, that amplifies it even more, you're more likely to be compassionate compassionate in action. It isn't one trait, it's a combination of traits. You just have to look at the right traits. No, I I love that. And I I find it fascinating. I I spent the majority of my adult life in the military and Ah. had was fortunate enough to be in basic military training where you see thousands of young men and women come through and, and be transformed in a matter of eight weeks. And it resonates around this self control and self confidence of developing those skills throughout that process. So Such important work. And perseverance. Listen, I'm going to add on to that because one of the most amazing opportunities I had was to train at 14 Army bases. So I worked in the Asian Pacific and South Pacific, 
But while I was there, it was the military commanders, even though I was helping the kids overcome stress and post-traumatic stress that was filtering down from their parents, they said, you should go talk to the Navy SEALs, the most elite forces in the world. And they'd say, hey, you should be training kids on the stuff we're doing. It's pretty darn simple and it's rewiring our brains. And that's what they're doing on military bases. On best thing for self-control, Navy SEALs would tell you, identify your stress signs. We keep pointing them out to each other. Hey, you're getting stressed. There goes your control. If you're gone, take a slow, deep breath and tell yourself, chill out. And they actually are using self-talk. I mean, the seals will go, I know that sounds soft and fluffy, but it's really powerful if you say, I got this. And then you take a one-two breath that's slow and deep. Just tell a kid, one-two breath. Take it real deep from your abdomen like you're riding up an elevator. Hold it. Now slowly let it out so you exhale is twice as long as the inhale. Fastest way to relax and you'll be able to get through a lot tougher times. We're overlooking simple stuff, Joshua. We're training our kids in stuff that doesn't have the results or give us the results, then we get frustrated because it's not based on science. Mm. I love that. I was hoping we could transition to nurturing the heart. This seems like a good spot to Aww. to bring in empathy. Could you outline how you define empathy and, and maybe discuss the ABCs of effective behavioral and, and cognitive empathy? Well, I am convinced that empathy is the transformational skill that the world needs right now because thrivers think we, not me. And if you think mm. we, not me, there goes hate, there goes racism, there goes bullying, there goes everything, and there goes a wonderful thing called inclusion. Empathy is also the best stress reducer we have. Why we're all in burnout mode? Because our stress is building, our empathy is going down because we're social distancing, and there goes burnout. You're hardwired for empathy, says the research. Oh, that's glorious news. But unless we cultivate it, it lies dormant. That, I think, is the problem because a lot of the things we're doing is praising the kid and letting him think they're so special, forgetting that there's another kid that exists as well. So the first thing is, let's do it right. The second thing is, know that there are different kinds of kids. I got three boys. They're as different as night and day, but a lot of parents go, he doesn't have empathy because he's not crying through Bambi. Okay. Some kids have the A kind of empathy and that's affective. So you'll watch them get distressed when they see the hurricane that just happened in Texas, or you'll watch them as they're reading Charlotte's Web kind of wipe the tear away, or you'll watch them come running in because somebody's been treated so unfairly and mom, we got to do something about it. And their whole face is distressed. That's affective, that's glorious, but that isn't the only kind of empathy. There's another kind that Harvard actually says is the top employability factor. It's cognitive. It's the child who's a little bit more serious sometimes, but you can see him in deep thought, trying to understand where the other person's coming from. Oh, God, clone that child, because that's what you need. The child who doesn't necessarily have to agree and tell your kid, you don't have to agree, but try to figure out where he's coming from. A deeper thinker is what we want our children to be. Don't just think of things as face value and assume that that fact is true. How do you know that that's true? Dig deeper, figure it out, be wiser. But that's a child who tries to do perspective thinking. Get into the other person's shoes. That's teachable as well. That's the A and the C. But where we're aiming for to me is the B, A, B, C. B is, so what if you feel it? And so much of what if you think it, what are you going to do about it? That's the behavior in action. And that's what I would call compassion in action. That's what the world needs. And that's what you see with real change makers. 
they're feeling it, they're knowing it, but they're going one step more and doing something about it. And how wonderful that is. Absolutely beautiful. And I think sometimes we can miss that component of of the courageous compassion and, and yeah. action of of what we want our our empathy to lead to in ourselves and our kids. So love the framework. Any simple practices to develop that come to mind? Yes, dozens of them. Because once I knew that this thing was so powerful, I got to tell you that one of the reasons I got so hooked on it, I was working again overseas with some other projects and I took side trips to death camps, genocide. Mm. And I also ended up on the killing fields. And there's one little thing that happened. While I was sitting there, almost getting a nosebleed from crying so hard of how could people be so inhumane, I walked off the killing fields and found this little cardboard table that had one book on it, and it changed my life again. It was called The Altruistic Personality by Samuel Oliner, and he's got the answer on how you raise a kid to be a change maker with heart. He was a kid who lived and survived the Holocaust while his parents went off to a death camp because of one woman named Bowinda, who was a perfect stranger who said, run Samuel and run into my house and I will hide you. He said, how can people be so humane? So what he did was pretty darn amazing. He began to interview rescuers from the Holocaust and you don't know who they are because these are people who don't want trophies. They just do it because it's the right thing to do. And he interviewed hundreds of them and said, how'd you become that way? How did you want to risk your life to help a perfect stranger? And every one of them said, it was how I was raised. So he said, how were you raised? Each one of them said three things. And you can instantly do these as the practical, simple thing. The first thing, as I watched my dad or mom, they always modeled it. How simple that is. Ask yourself each night, if your kid had only your behavior to watch, what would they have caught? Those parents modeled kindness. They always had an extra overcoat for the man who was destitute. Or let's have an extra um, dinner for the person who doesn't have any dinner. Let's do something for them. The second thing is they all said, my dad expected it. They wanted me to be kind. And boy, if you didn't, they immediately said, so what are you going to do about it? That isn't how we act in this family. So you immediately flipped it and they expected us to be kind or kind-hearted and empathetic. And the third thing is that changed our life is they said they gave us opportunities to do good. So you got into the habit of doing service, but it was always a habit of what resonated with the child, not resonated with the parent. So they'd always ask me like, who are you worried about? The neighbor next door. Why? Because she's all by herself. So what you can do about it? Well, maybe we can bake some cookies, Dad, and put it on her doorstep. Good. Let's do that. And every kid said it was the look in the person's eye that had such gratitude. It started with one, not with a mass of trying to save the world. Started with one. I have to go bake some more cookies. Or there was a little guy that I interviewed named Nathan. He said, it was a really rainy day and I was sitting in the back seat of the car and I happened to see this man and he looked so cold and he was homeless. I said, mom, stop the car. We got to give the man daddy's coat. Well, bless the mom because she stopped the car. I ran and gave the coat to the man and he started to cry and say, thank you. I got back in the car. I just kept looking in the rear view mirror and I said, mom, we got to go home and get more overcoats. And he started delivering overcoats. He said, changed my life because my mom let me do it. Starts with one. That is beautiful. One of the things that also struck me in the book, 
coming back to the the introduction and the and the striving and the GPAs and the test scores, yeah. and then I read that one third of college students drop out at the end of their freshman year, which is the highest dropout rate in the, in the industrial world. What is going on there, Michelle? <laughs> I'm telling you, that again was an aha moment. I was delivering a keynote to 2,500 mental health counselors from Ivy League schools. And I said, why are you having me come and talk to you about how to teach empathy and coping to college kids? And they said, because something's happening with kids. They're the best and the brightest coming to us. But we've never seen such an empty breed of kids we are running out of running out of health services and counseling services for our kids. And there's a couple of reasons now I realize for it. First of all, we've got them to there. We finally drop them off and we go this sigh of relief. But the first thing we now know comes from Bill Damon, from I think is the best adolescent psychologist we have in the world. He's at Stanford. And he said, one thing that's really troubling is today's kids are so smart when they're coming into Stanford, but they don't have a sense of purpose in their lives. They arrive here, but many of them, it's not necessarily that they want to be here. The highest correlation of whether your child is going to graduate from a college is whether he sees himself belonging to that place. So maybe we filter it. Instead, we give him the fist guide and some post-it notes, leave it in the bathroom and say, go through it and find where you see yourself. Where do you see yourself? That's the first thing. Second of all, we're not teaching them coping strategies before they get there. You know that the colleges are so concerned about lack of resilience of college freshmen. This is UC Penn. We're looking at Stanford. We're looking at Yale. We're looking at Harvard. Do you know the first week of orientation? Now, they can't do it now, but prior to the pandemic, the first week of orientation in those schools, they now have a week of resilience training. We're waiting too late. If we want to keep our kids thriving and we want to keep them happy and we want to keep them mentally strong and, yeah, the GPA, then we got to rewind our parenting and start teaching them at an earlier age the strategies that are in Thrivers. They're simple. They're easy. But those are the same strategies that they're teaching at freshman year, first semester of college, to keep the kid there. Yeah. What would you say are some myths about resilience or some tips that you really hope people would know about resilience? Only because I interviewed a lot of adults and I said, what do you see about resilience? And when I do webinars, I can see their face go, whoa, I never thought of that. I think the first thing is, please know it's teachable. Most parents and educators, I think, are at the misnomer that it's locked into your DNA or it's only a certain zip code that's going to help you be resilient, or a certain race or culture. No, it's universal. Second of all, let me buy the program. And it's not a program. It's really an experiential process. When I I put all the activities and thrivers together, my goal wasn't for you to sit down and do it at six o'clock every night, but weave them into everyday experiences because that's kids said how they crave. It's not a one GPA or one IQ. There are so many myths about it or that it's one trait. It seems that there are seven most highly correlated. And what we really want to do is reframe our parenting. Because look, we only got this one time to get this right. There's no rewind button on parenting. It is a different world. I think if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's resetting that it's uncertain. And if it's not a pandemic, it could be just yesterday. Who knows what's happening when this airs another school shooting already? 
we're looking at enormous obstacles that our kids are facing, but that's okay. Emmy Warner has told us, could kids get through wars? Kids get through poverty. Kids get through sexual abuse. Horrific, horrific, if they have protective factors and caring people in their lives. You know, I was interviewing lots of people, and then I started reading horrific stories about extraordinary thrivers. Elizabeth Smart, an amazing woman, Elizabeth Smart, kidnapped, can you imagine, for nine months in extreme distress. I mean, horrors of horrors, a nightmare. But when I read her biography, she said there was one moment in the first week of the kidnapping that she realized this is what's going to help me get through this. And it was remembering what her mother had told her. Elizabeth, I will love you no matter what. She said, that's what sustained me for nine months. I'm going, God, what a ordinary, simple thing that sometimes we forget to just instill in our kids. Our children say they're so worried about disappointing us. Many of the kids said, please tell me that you love me, not because I'm a test score. I love you no matter what, Elizabeth. How extraordinary to make a difference mm. in a kid's life. So powerful. At the time of this recording, there are many kids that are transitioning back to maybe face-to-face -face yeah. classroom education yeah. and a lot of transitions. What comes to mind around some simple practices that maybe parents can be mindful of during these times? Children are going back after a year of distancing. And the fascinating thing is, once again, kids have told us what they're worried about most. So we follow their leads, and here's some simple things we can do. One worry is, are they going to like me? I haven't been practicing my social skills for over a year, and social skills like, hi, how are you, my name is, need to be practiced. Put that onto your plate. I think that's the first thing. And you don't do that by telling the child. You do it by showing the child. Ideas number one is when you're going to the grocery store with your child, yeah, sure, wear the mask. But what you do is you start saying hello. You start waving because kids will be more comfortable. When you're talking around the dinner table, look at the color. Always look at the color of the talker's eyes. Look at daddy's eyes because you'll hold your head up. You'll look at the person, and that's the beginning stage of empathy. It doesn't mean that you're going to empathize, but at least you're looking at the person. Talk feelings far more naturally in your family. But I think the first thing is we do know that well-liked kids, real easy, but they do three things. They say hello, so you may not be able to say it, but you can wave. They encourage one another. That's a really interesting thing. High fives when you're playing shoots and ladders. Good job. Watch the sports events and say, hey, you look at those that team. They're going there and they're doing high fives with each other. And they always look up. They don't look down. The second thing is children say they're, they're fearful about catching the virus because they've been watching a steady death count every single day on TV. Or they've been watching somebody had passed away. They hear about it and they're scared. Why aren't they going to catch it? So I think the first thing is go online and show them the safety standards that have been met by the school. What are they doing to protect you? They really are concerned about you. And the second thing is back to what I learned on Army bases. Navy SEALs said they chunked their fears. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, our goal isn't to get through the whole battle. Sure, that's nice. But we want to get to the first five minutes and the next five minutes and the next five minutes. You don't throw a child into the deep end of the pool if they're scared of water. So you put your toe in and then you put your knee in. The same thing happens with a virus. You make it slow and easy. You don't try to talk your kid out of the fear. It's real. 
But instead, let's open the window today. Oh, I think we're okay today. Let's open the door the next day. Let's open, put your toe out. Let's walk to the mailbox. Slowly and gradually, we need to help our kids start to rebuild their thriving potential. And the most important thing I need think we need to do is be calm ourselves. Keep your concerns to yourself. Your kids are hearing them. I'll tell you the most fascinating thing about how critical it is for us to be calm. Anna Freud, Sigmund's daughter, did a really interesting study in what happened in London. So let's just take a moment and think about London. During World War II, we've gone through a pandemic, but they went through nightly air raids, uh, just a horrific war where every night it was, how are we going to survive? Are we going to make it the next day? So she looked at which kids made it because what did happen is that many of the parents in London sent their kids off to the countryside because you'll be safer there. Then they brought the kids back and they brought the kids who were had remained in London despite the horrific terror. And they said, which kids fared better? And the kids who fared better actually were the kids who remained with the parents in London if the parents were calm. Children are resilient if we're resilient. And that's the bottom line. We got to be thrivers so our kids are thrivers. That is so, so helpful, Michelle. I really appreciate that. Is there anything we we didn't discuss that maybe you'd like to mention before we wrap up the show? I think the most important thing is parents may ask, do kids have to have all seven of the traits to be a thriver? No, because we don't have all seven of the traits, so don't worry about them. Real quickly, what those traits are is confidence we talked about. We talked about empathy. We talked about self-control. Integrity. Kids who are thrivers know what they stand for. And as a result, they don't have to wibber and waver. They just are able to mentally move ahead faster. Curiosity. It's fascinating how much curiosity keeps coming up as a thriver because they're out-of-box thinkers. They're open to people or ideas so they can problem solve. I think the piece on that one is don't rob your kids of always rescuing them. Instead, well, thank you for telling me you're upset. What's the problem? Well, let's brainstorm. Think of one idea you could have done differently next time so that when push comes to shove, curious kids have an open-mindedness. Then number six is perseverance. We're trying to aim for perseverance right now first, and we're forgetting that they need some of those others. Your kids have kind of hit the COVID wall, and their motivation is down because their stress is up. Or their empathy is lower. So let's keep looking at some of those other facts until the final one is hope and optimism. Keep your hope and optimism alive because, wow, that nurtures your children so that they have this ability to say, the world is a good place and we're going to get through it. And yeah, you will if you keep instilling that in your child. I love it. That's a beautiful spot to wrap up. I encourage everyone to pick up the book. Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. This has been a great conversation. I'm really grateful and and happy we were able to connect. You've written many books on the topic and have really dedicated yourself to such an important practice, career, topic, and more now than ever. So I, I really thank you so much for it. Thank you. Dr. Michelle Borba. I thank you so much for your time today. Where would you point people interested in learning more about you? Oh, thanks. Well, michelleborba.com. I'm a 1L Michelle, and my last name, Borba, rhymes with Zorba. So that has (laughs) just about everything with a lot of downloads of things to get started. 
book discussion guides for parents and another one for educators. Because I think the other thing we may be doing wrong is trying to do this by ourselves. Shrink mm. the village and find somebody else who's like-minded and you can find enormous resources in your community. You know, there's a good service project we can get our kids involved <laughs> in. Or, wow, did you see what the Boys and Girls Club is doing? Or, you know, find other things that you can support each other. Otherwise, it's too lonely to be a parent. <laughs> and it's hard being a teacher. I love it. That's beautiful. We'll link all of that in the show notes. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Write to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well. Mm